The New Disruptors is sponsored by ZipRecruiter and Smile Software's Text Expander. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that affirms Michael Jackson's statement that no one wants to be defeated. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. We're planning a meetup in Portland, Oregon on September 18th. Details will come at the end of this podcast. Jack Conti is a musician and entrepreneur and one half of the group Pomplamoose with Natalie Dawn. He and his partner have had millions of people watch their videos on YouTube and launched a successful career for their stripped-down but layered covers. Jack and Natalie also have both branched out into solo work, and Jack recently launched a twist on conventional crowdfunding with Patreon, an artist-supporting site. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's fun to talk to someone who's working all the different angles of this, too, because you've got both the career as a musician and, you know, starting with the, like the electronic and online part, the real world touring part, and now this new venture. I'm always curious what gets people started down these paths, because I know that most artistic careers start with a kind of obsession. Have you been a musician since you were a tiny child and just always been battering on tin cans and playing guitars? Yeah, I guess so. Um, I started playing piano when I was six. Um, I started with like classical lessons and doing the usual. And then my father taught me the blues scale. And so I started improvising and, and writing music and stuff when I was really young. Um, and then, you know, I that was the bug. I, I was bit in my whole life, you know, then through grade school and I started taking jazz lessons and high school I was in combos and big band and in college I was a music major and yeah I mean it started when I was a little little kid. You play lots of different instruments at this point too having started that early? I would like to say I play the piano and I'm a hack at uh, several <laughs> other instruments but yes I try to play a lot of instruments. Well, you're kind of a percussive artist, though, too, right? If I watch the videos, I see that you can turn anything into a you know a surface that makes some kind of resonance. Yeah, one thing I really like doing is if you record drums. Uh, since I record drums in in samples and then layer samples and basically build beats, um, I like to record other things, whether it's just hitting a surface or white noise from outside, you know, a plane flying overhead or whatever it is, but something percussive or ambient and then mix that into the drum beat and it just it makes the drum beat feel really organic and and natural because you get you get the uh this very precise programmed drum beat but then there's this percussive natural organic thing happening in the background and that makes the groove feel really human oh i know you don't shy away from the kind of instrument either like um you know i was just telling you before the podcast i showed my children the beat it video which is one of your more famous ones and you know there's a point where i'm like that's a plinky sound i'm like oh it's a kid's you're playing kid's piano and then you pull up a uh like a little uh, kid's xylophone and you've mixed that in with the richer sounds as well it doesn't sound out of place but you're not afraid to bring that kind of instrument in uh, into it yeah yeah i mean i remember when we first doubled the sound of a toy piano and a uh and and just one of those little kid's xylophones and it it just it sounded devilish to me. I guess it doesn't sound that way to other people. It sounds really sweet, but to me, it just sounded like little demons like ripping at your feet or something. And uh, I just I really loved it. I just thought it was like really awesome sounding. And so we started, you know, that became a Pompamoose trademark was the sound of that toy piano and, and Glockenspiel doubled like that. Oh, that's 
funny. Do you do you tonally shift and offset as you layer them? Because I mean, that's the overtones you get from those devices. They're totally weird and unpredictable too, right? They're not that pure cultured sound you get from a piano or some other you know adult instrument. No, no, it's all funky harmonics and really oh, wow. plunky attack times and everything, yeah. Oh, because any two, every time you play it, you're getting something different, right? So if you, yep. uh, I see, so when you layer, yeah, because it almost sounds like the minimalist music styles of like uh, Stephen Reich were, um, sure. you know, the same thing, like the overtones. I, uh, I'm a big fan of minimalist music because it's revelatory in that way. You have to listen very carefully and the overtones tell you something as the music shifts in and out of phase. And it's funny that you say that because I feel like there's a little bit of that even with the little plinky <laughs> piano, it's like oh, there's yeah. something that emerges from it that's greater than any single track. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that too. You know, one thing in college when I was taking orchestration classes that I remember learning, one thing that really stood out to me was you can have an oboe play the line or, mm. you know, you can have a clarinet play the line or you can have an oboe and a clarinet play the line and when the oboe and the clarinet play in unison it's a new color it's not uh-huh. it's not an oboe and a clarinet it's a new singular color and that's a really exciting thing because suddenly you're you the possibilities for orchestration and the, the possibilities for colors um, just go up exponentially because you have all these combinations at your fingertips. And I kind of, I, I really have applied that, or at least I, I like to think I've applied that to, you know, rock and roll where um, you can combine any kinds of instruments or, you know, guitar pedals or whatever it is and get all these new colors. That is, oh, that's really fascinating. You get a new instrument out of it mm-hmm. just by, um, well, it's a, yeah, there's the, there's, you know, that minimalist idea too that you, you hear multiple things playing the same thing and in their emergent properties from that the ear is combining. It's our perception of it. I mean, there's both the physics you can measure and say this is an objective phenomenon, but our ear is combining the sound in different ways too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Pretty wonderful. Well, so you know, th- so you obsessed musician, like a lot of musicians. I, mean, I talk to some people who they start late in life, like they have a knack. Maybe they're a natural. But they don't really pick it up and start putting in the hours until they're in their twenties or even thirties. But you know, then there's I think a large group of people like you who always has that musical expression coming out. But, you know, I know as well as you do, it's hard to make a living as an artist of any kind, musician especially. There's lots of people out there in the field. Did you ever think of this? Did you come to the issue of like, what am I going to do with my life as a, I need to figure out a knack or or was it just I've got a kind of thing I need to express and I'm just going to do it? No, there there came a point in – I remember in college, uh, I actually remember the – I remember the night because it was so miserable. <laughs> I was I was sitting outside of the dormitory on the the uh, the hallway in this sort of breezeway between two dorms, and uh, I was just I was deciding to be a music major, and I felt like I was giving up because my whole life I had, you know, studied really hard and you know taken AP physics and you know taken all the hard classes and. And here I was in college, my second or third year in, saying, I'm going to be a music major. And, you know, all my friends were taking engineering classes and in high-level math. And, and I just felt like I was I, – I, I, not only did I feel like I was going to be poor my entire life, I was like, okay, well, I'm, <laughs> going to, I'm resigning myself to a life of poverty and trying to play music for a living. And I'll never, that will never work. And not only that, but I'm, I'm going to, you know, two years from now, all my classmates are going to have all these useful skills and I'm going to be a musician. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I remember just 
feeling like I had no choice. I had to be a music major. This was the, I had to be a musician. This was the, the path that I was on and, and there was nothing else in the world that I could be happy doing. But I remember that being also very depressing at the same time that, you know, I was going to basically lead this life of, of, uh, just, I, I really thought I was going to be, uh, struggling and poor my whole life. Yeah. That's wow. And, but you still, that was still the path you had to take. Yeah, I, 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 again, I feel like I had no choice. It, 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 I mean, everyone around me was like, Jack, if you can do anything else, do it. <laughs> if you feel like you can do anything in the world else. Oh my God. And, and I, and I really evaluated hard and there was nothing else in the world that, that, I mean, it's not that I couldn't have done something else. It's that I couldn't have not done music. So even if I had done something else, I would have spent my days in the job dreaming about being able to play piano all day. But so you have the incredible um, chronological advantage of having been born in the 1980s as opposed to, say, like me in the 1960s then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, what we're doing now, right, is simply impossible. I mean, you could not have done – I mean, of course, that goes without saying, but the, the diffusion of, of content and uh, across the web – you know the diversity now of niche content and and the availability of resources and tools for musicians that connect us directly with our public and I mean that kind of stuff makes it possible to be a small business musician these days something you you just simply were not able to do in the seventies or eighties or nineties. That's right because you would be spending all your time like copying cassettes and traveling around and if you were lucky you would you know get a few hours of sleep a night be you know out on the road two hundred days a year and you'd still probably have another temp job you did when you got back. Yeah. Yep. Yep, and you and unless you were enormously famous like Led Zeppelin, you were nobody. Mm-hmm. You were either you were either Led Zeppelin or you were nobody, and that meant also that you were either super freaking rich or you had no money, <laughs> and um, and that's just not the case anymore. There are all these cool small business musicians like killing it, making a living, making you know making enough money to buy a house, and you know they're not they're not Lady Gaga rich, but they're they're like you know. Some of them are lawyer rich, <laughs> you know. Well, I'm gonna do. I'll do a call back to the future because we'll talk about Patreon more later. But I mean, isn't that the thing that you know? You guys have uh, with Pomplamoose managed to get an enormous audience, but it seems like you can have a musician could have thousands of true fans. They don't need millions in order to make that kind of modest living. Uh, yes. I mean, absolutely. That's, that's the key there. I mean, if, if, you know, if, again, there's the idea of the thousand true fans, which is if you have a thousand fans who are each willing to kick in a hundred bucks a year, you know, that's you're, good. you're making, you're making a really good living. Yeah. There are a lot of places you live. You know, I, I've been, so I've known about Pomplamoose forever. I forget who sent me the link first time and I, you know, and I'm sure you get this all the time. I'll do my minor fanboy thing, which is I watched, I think I saw Beat It first and my jaw falls down and I'm like, oh, it's so beautiful what you guys do, ah. but it's so beautifully, like technically constructed as well as aesthetically beautiful, but it doesn't feel like anything anyone had done before. And that's a very difficult th- thing to achieve in life, period. But it's you, you folks seem to come out of nowhere. I know this is it was about four years ago that you started to get attention through your YouTube videos. Is that the time frame, like 2009? Yeah, I guess I guess we started. I started uploading YouTube in two thousand seven. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, maybe it was even two thousand six was my first YouTube upload. Um, but uh, but then Pomplamoose started around two thousand eight. I think was our first video. Mm-hmm. 
And then in 2009, it started getting a little bigger. And, by, and then 2010 is when our single ladies video hit. So that's kind of the timeline. Right. That's now, it's currently is over 10 million views on, yeah. on YouTube. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. But this is all viral, right? This wasn't a plan on your part, was it? Uh, this is just, you were doing, you guys were doing your thing and it caught fire? Well, you know, I guess that depends on what you mean by plan. Mm. You know, uh, let's see, how do I phrase this here? Pomplamoose started as a side project. I wanted to be pursuing my solo career. Natalie wanted to be pursuing her solo career. We made this, I produced one of her songs, and that's all it was going to be. And we put it on my YouTube page to sort of turn people onto her YouTube page. Yeah. And immediately it did better than anything I had released by myself or anything she had released by herself. And we thought, well, geez, okay, let's call it something. And Natalie bought Pomplamoose.com, and we put out our <laughs> next song as Pomplamoose. And again, it got more hits than any of our solo stuff. And so we said, okay, let's just do one of these a week. And I guess we're called Pomplamoose now. And so then we kept putting things out. And then we started covering some songs. And then we, then actually, um, I guess the turning point for us was, uh, I have to pay a little bit of homage to Julia Noons here, who's currently at my house uh, recording uh, a couple songs. With oh, literally at your house right now? Yeah, she's literally oh, in, in the house right now in our studio recording some songs. <laughs> she, she's sort of, We went to Rochester, New York to produce one of her records about four or five years ago. And I just saw what she was doing and how she was doing it. She was just incredibly successful on YouTube at the time. But she was like covering these mega mass hit pop songs. And Pop Moose sort of saw that. We saw that and said, okay, let's try our hands at like a mega mass hit pop song. And when we came back, that's when we recorded Single Ladies and released it. And it got about half a million views overnight, literally. And and that's kind of when we sort of realized, okay, you know, if you cover a, a mega pop song, you can kind of get a lot of traction from that. And now that's kind of the norm on YouTube. You know, four years later, like there are literally bands just putting out a new like they just go through the iTunes charts and they just record, you know, whatever pop song is big this week, they record it and put it out. And there it's now a big industry. People are making a living doing that just, and not like a small living, like, you know, 50 grand a month living basically really? off of, yeah, yeah. Off of recording, you know, uh, covers and, and posting them on, uh, on YouTube. Let's take a break to talk about Smile Software's Text Expander, one of our sponsors. It's been so long since I've had to type my email address, my street address, my phone number, and lots of other recurring bits of text in full that I can scarcely remember them at times. I'm a longtime user of Text Expander, which is a utility for Mac OS X and iOS that lets you substitute a few keystrokes for long strings of text. It's faster than typing. It saves wear and tear on your fingers. Text Expander can be set to correct typos automatically, and you can update and add to the list of words that it fixes as you type. I use Text Expander all the time to fill in forms, to sign emails, to drop in the current date and time and notes I take during interviews. The latest version for the Mac also lets you create form letters with multiple choice pop-up menus for quicker responses to email questions. In iOS, Text Expander works with 140 apps. This includes Day One, IA Writer, Byword, OmniFocus, and Things. There's a full list of compatible apps on its website. Find out more about Text Expander and Smile's other products at smilesoftware.com/nd. That's smilesoftware.com/nd, like new disruptors. Let them know we sent you. Now back to the program. 
That is, that's the most fascinating thing. I mean, this is thank you, U.S. Copyright Code for uh, compulsory uh, licensing, which I talked about on a previous episode with Jonathan Colton uh, several months ago after uh, Baby Got Back, his uh, rendition had been ripped off by Glee. We had a little discussion uh, about compulsory yeah. music. And, you know, you get the, that's, I, I'll explain briefly for listeners is, you know, it, it lets you as a musician, you can record anything that's been published publicly. You can do a version of it as long as it's substantively the same music and lyrics as I understand it. And then you mm-hmm. pay this statutorily defined fee to Harry Fox agency. And, but you, you don't have to get permission from anybody. So you can do this and it's completely legal, but you only own your audio recording of it. You don't have any rights in the original music. And you can't, if I understand it, you can't transform it dramatically, or the law at least says you can't, you know, dramatically change things. It has to be at least somewhat faithful in certain aspects. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, you can't be a parody. That requires a different license. Um, mm. uh, but and, and while that is true for mechanical sales, in other words, the, the download and distribution of either a CD, a physical product, or the, or the download of an MP3 or AAC file or just any kind of audio file, that you can buy a mechanical, a compulsory mechanical license for that. You can get that, and you're legally entitled to that. What you're not legally entitled to is synchronizing the composition oh, with right. a video and publishing that on on any platform, whether it's YouTube or television or anything like that. So um, you're not necessarily allowed to put someone else's composition, whether it's your recording or their recording. You can't use their composition synchronized with picture unless you get what's called a sync license. And that's why uh, full screen is getting sued right now. It's because basically of this uh, of this problem, you know, where where their users are uploading content to YouTube and mm-hmm. publishers are are suing the content owners in this case, full screen. Oh, that's oh, that's fascinating. So when you did single ladies, you had to actually so you could under the compulsory license you were set in terms of releasing audio only recordings and you on iTunes. that recording yes. on iTunes. So you had to obtain separately, and you were savvy enough to know to do this, obviously, to then get the sync license to release the video. But that's a step you had. Do you have to apply for that? Get permission, or is that a routine process now too? So we did not. Uh, obtain a sync license and the reason is youtube so youtube has a deal with lots of publishers um that basically uh, it's it's not really a blanket sync license but it it um they've paid some publishers in order to allow their users to upload cover videos and copyrighted content onto their platform because it's in youtube's best interest to let their users, I mean, for, for not only for the growth of the company, but also in terms of lawsuits. I mean, there was a there was a billion, right? Wasn't there like a billion dollar lawsuit? I think the, Viacom. Viacom. I think yeah. they lost it in the end, didn't they? Just not, like if several months ago, it finally got dismissed for an appeal. But yeah, it was this great way because it was what's a, what's YouTube's liability? And originally they were like, we don't have any liability. We're just up, we're letting people upload stuff. It's their problem. We'll pull down things. But then over time, they've added all these layers of licensing, like auto music recognition. They know when a, as you upload something, if there's music in it, yeah. that's correct. And then they, they apply a license to it if they have a relationship. Yeah. And, and not only that, but they're, they, you know, they run ads over things now and, and, um, and, you know, in order to run an ad over something, you have to claim it um, as your copyrighted content. You have to be the rights holder and things mm-hmm. like that. So there's a whole lot of complexity and layers. And YouTube's working on all that right now. I mean, you know, that's, again, that's another thing that's in their best interest is to 
is to make that process as streamlined and easy and robust as possible. So it applies to all different kinds of content, not just music. I see, but they made this easy for you though. So this is the other, that point in time is not only can you up, uh, not only could you have all the digital tools you need to record something great and then upload it because we have the bandwidth and there's a service like YouTube, but on top of the mechanical license, YouTube was also, you could upload single ladies and not be worried about that, uh, that s- issue that would otherwise maybe require hiring a recording lawyer who would then negotiate or going through the whatever process you'd have to go through. Yeah, well, uh, it's not so much that you'd have to get a lawyer because you can't. I mean, you would not be able to obtain a sync license for that. You just as an individual, as an individual, you couldn't do it. Yes, you couldn't. I mean, it's cost prohibitive. Interesting. You know, sync, sync licenses are individually negotiated on a one-off basis, so you'd have to go to the publishers and say, "I want to record a cover video," and and you know they would probably, in most cases, they would just turn you down unless you were willing to shell out a hundred thousand dollars for the sync license, and and that's not unreasonable for for oh, major. It's just not worth like that. It's not worth it to them because there's not they can't get the reap enough of the financial benefit from it because they're hit song is already pulling in all the money they don't yeah. need to they don't need to do this yep oh that's that's bad. so you got that's a great set i mean i know we got into a little detail there about the copyright site but it is fascinating because that's there's pieces of this that i don't always understand as a somebody outside the recording industry here's the other part that i've, I've been studying youtube since it was launched and i will tell you i don't actually understand how artists you know, monetize their success. You get a half a million. I mean, I know about touring and promotion and then being able to sell things off one's own site, but you get a half a million views of single ladies overnight. How do you translate that into something that lets you have a, like a prosperous career? Yeah. So that's the tough part, isn't it? Um, uh, Oh, so it's not good. I thought it was like, you're like, no, there's one, two, three. It's like, all right, it is still hard. Okay. Oh yeah. I mean, that's why, that's why things like like Patreon, I think are necessary, but, um, Mm -hmm. but you know, if you, so, okay, I'll just tell you, first of all, I think there are lots of smart people working on how to monetize a fan base, right? Because in this sort of age of the creative class and demi celebrities, you have, um, tens and tens of thousands of people with, you know, uh, cumulatively billions of fans Mm -hmm. and, um, and figuring out how to, make money from that is a problem that a lot of people are interested in. So the first thing I would say is like, don't worry about making money quite yet because there are lots of smart people working on it and they're going to have really good ideas. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so, and you know, it's kind of, it's the Instagram mentality for musicians, which is like, don't worry about making money at first, like just acquire users. You know, Instagram sold for a billion dollars without a business plan. They didn't have mm-hmm. any, any idea or well they didn't have anything implemented about how they were going to be making money it was really just they had you know 26 million users or something like that and that's kind of that's kind of why they sold because they had this crew and and i think musicians are sort of in the same boat right now if if you have a lot of fans there will be plenty of creative ways for you to monetize that it's more a matter of uh you know making good music and and having people who want to listen to your music so Mm. Um, but in, in, in terms of the, the ways that are available now, ad revenue is really – ad revenue is wonderful, but it's really not that much. It's a little extra for musicians, but you can't really run ads over covers unless you're part of a network like full screen, and even then they can get sued. And even if you do run ads, even if you get a network to, to run ads over your videos – 
the CPMs are so low because it's being split so many times in so many different parties. The network is taking a, a piece. YouTube is taking a piece. The publisher is taking a piece. By the time the check gets back to the artist, it's been cut in half eight times, and there's just about nothing left. So, And because YouTube is an algorithmic-based site, you know, it's, it's a searching, uh, it's a search engine, you know, people, you, your covers are going to get more hits than your originals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because of these recommendation algorithms, and they're like, oh, you liked Beyonce's single ladies? Well, then you might like Pomplamoose's single ladies. But they're not going to say, oh, then you might like Pomplamoose's original song that you've never searched for and never heard of. You know, it's just th- that song is going to get fewer hits, sort of unless it takes off by itself and is just a hit song by itself. But that's not in your control. So the covers are going to get more hits, and those are the ones that you can't really monetize anyway. So that's difficult to monetize. You can sell your songs on iTunes with what you were saying, where you have this you know, mechanical royalty. Um, you, you just pay mechanical royalties. You, know, you buy a mechanical license via Harry Fox, and you sell songs on iTunes. And that's a, that's a really great living. In fact, I think that's probably the, that was the most lucrative thing for Punk News, was, was our iTunes sales. Just people wanting to have the songs on their iPods after listening to them on YouTube. And you hit a good time with that too, right? Because Apple used to – when iTunes launched, it was difficult for independent artists to get in there and that loosened up and loosened up. But by 2009, 2010, this wasn't a hassle to get into iTunes or did you have to use a third party to help you uh, get placed there? I think originally we used um, – um, what was it called? Uh, Reverb Nation and CD oh, Baby. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I was using those companies. Um, CD Baby I think was, was the company I was using basically when we – when uh, you know – Back when Pomplamoose was uploading to iTunes, yeah, but then you, but then, uh, but so you, did you switch the models? Do you not sell through iTunes now, or it's iTunes plus MP3s directly from or music from your own? Oh site? yeah, no, no, we still sell through iTunes. Our okay. our digital distributor now is In Grooves. Um, they they push out to basically all of the uh, all of the DDPs. So they they send music to uh, you know to Rhapsody and Spotify and. Um, that's that's good. You like your fifteen dollars. You get your fifteen dollars or your check from Spotify. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. With, with that, but so I see. Yeah, because I was wondering about that. As I knew that that you know, every time things become baroque, it's like it's a management problem. I talked to um, ebook publishers, and you know, there's I don't even know how many. You know, Amazon may be the eight hundred pound gorilla, but you don't want to lose the other twenty percent of the market. So you have to format like seven hundred different ways to get to the other thousand stores. And the music maybe I don't know if it's easier. There's sort of one format, right? Or maybe MP3 and AAC, something like that. Yeah. But, you, but you're still working with a party that this isn't something that you want to hire someone like a person to do. You want to have a company that does all the metadata and all the uploading and accounting and all that nonsense and pushes it out to the thousand worldwide stores. Yeah, yeah, you do. And and there are plenty of companies that do that. You can go with, you know, TuneCore or something like that and they'll charge a a fee and th- there are so many tools and resources just sort of whichever one works best for you depending on what your sales are and, you know, where you want your product and stuff like that. Well, you know, a few years ago, the before I think maybe the rise of um, memetically spread music or something like that, like the early 2000s, late 1990s, there was this kind of thing of, okay, the labels have sucked 
the money out of artists. Artists aren't really, you know, maybe bigger artists have negotiated deals or the ones that have been around longer are getting some money from the recordings. But smaller artists are seeing very, very little money relative to the amount of sales they're getting. And touring was the big thing. Well, from what you folks are doing, it seems like you've, you know, you bypass, I don't bypass that, but the ability to reach people directly through YouTube and then develop that relationship with them and then have them go and buy your music. Does that, do you still do touring on top of that? I know you have toured, but is that become an important part of how you structure, let's say, you know, your financial and artistic life or is touring a smaller part relative to this online digital music revenue? Yeah. So First of all, uh, there are so many different models and, and uh, of, of revenue generation for bands, and you know our our model is not necessarily the, the right model, or right. it's just it really is about what your fan base is like and what's what's right for you. So I'll just tell you, our you know for us, touring is a loss, and that's wow, because okay. yeah, that's because now it's not always a loss. Sometimes we'll come out a little bit ahead, or we'll break even, or whatever it is. And it's not that we can't fill a good place. We can. I mean, when Pop Moose goes on tour, we're playing. You know, we play in San Francisco. It's it's we sold out. You know, we sell out Great American Music Hall. It's six hundred fifty people, and we sold out Williamsburg Music Hall in in Brooklyn, which was another you know I think six hundred fifty people somewhere around there. So it's not that we can't draw a crowd. We can, but. Uh, it's really freaking expensive to go on tour. You need, <laughs> you need to, you know, rent a van and then you got to pay bandmates. And we had three background vocalists and a guitar player and a drummer and, you know, and then everybody needs hotel rooms and then you got to pay for everybody's food, you know, and then, uh, you're paying for gas and you flights to get out to where it is that you're starting the tour and and then you're paying your tour manager and then your booking agent takes a cut and then the lawyer takes 5% <laughs> and it's I, I mean it is freaking expensive to go on tour it's and and everybody it's not that people are taking money where they shouldn't be i mean everybody deserves a percentage because everybody's adding to the pie but if you right. think about all of the logistics and the time that's required to set up and execute a tour, it is just a tremendous, tremendous effort. And, and you know, so you sell 600 tickets. Like, okay, is that really going to pay for the entire <laughs> tour? And, and unless, unless you're really... Unless you're really cranky, unless you're, you know, sleeping, uh, unless you're doing two people to a couch in, at a friend's place and you're, you know, you're aren't using a van, you know, you're whatever, hitchhiking around with a single guitar and you don't have bandmates <laughs> and you're not paying for a hotel room. Unless you're doing that kind of tour, you know, it's going to be really, really expensive. Um, so, oh, the, oh, the glamour of it all, though. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. But you guys must you, – so you love doing this. You want to do this to to have the feeling of the being on the stage, having live audience reward your fans. That's got to be the motivation, isn't it? Uh, otherwise – Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't do tours that much. We've done we've done a handful of tours. Um, and, and yeah, they're, they're great. They're incredible experiences. They're really fun for fans. They're really fun for us. We get to meet people face-to-face. -face. We get to travel. It's really great. It's an awesome thing. It's just – not a sustainable business for us at this point in time. Maybe if we were filling 2,500 person venues, then it would make a little bit more sense financially and we'd actually come home with some money in our pockets. But, um, you know, the last tour uh, that we did just 
took, I mean, months and months of work and planning and execution. And, you know, when we were out on the road and uh, for weeks and there were plane flights and, and Natalie and I each came home after like four months of work with $500 in our pockets. And, and, you know, like, what do you, like, we, what if we had spent all of that time working on a new album? Like right. we could have written and recorded a new album in the time that it took us to play that tour where we played eight shows or whatever and, and reached maybe cumulatively 2,000 people or, or 4,000 people. But you need, the, you need the energy of being on the road because otherwise you're in your house, in your studio, and you're not seeing other human beings. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, <laughs> it's, a matter, right? it's a matter of balance and, and what works for you, you know, and – you know, um, I don't know. Natalie and I, we we like being at home. Like we we mm-hmm. like we like recording. We like being in our in our. We you know these we we uh, we got these Hyundai deals a little while back, which were awesome, and <laughs> we sold a bunch of songs, and we were able to to buy a house and build two recording studios, and oh, so now awesome. we hang out here and record music, and and it's pretty awesome. Like it's I don't know I I really enjoy it. Not saying that I don't ever want to go on tour, but. I like being at home, you know. I like I like my life here. Let's take a break to talk about ZipRecruiter, one of this week's sponsors. I've been an entrepreneur for over 2 decades and it's always been hard to find the right people to hire. With so many job boards out there, how can you know which one will produce the best talent realistically to fill the position fast and with the perfect candidate? You need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can do it with this week's sponsor, ZipRecruiter.com. ZipRecruiter lets you post to more than 40 job sites at once. ZipRecruiter also posts your job on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Just post once and you watch the qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. You can screen applicants, rate them, hire the right people fast. And right now, for you, dear listeners, you can try ZipRecruiter.com for free and find out why it's been used by over 100,000 businesses. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash ND. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash ND, like New Disruptors, or click on the banner at NewDisrupt.org. Give them a try for the next position for which you're hiring, and you'll see how you can get the best of all the job boards with just a few clicks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash ND. And now back to the show. Are you out in the country? I don't want to aid stalkers as to get a precise location of where you're at, but you're, yeah. do you live in the country? Uh, yeah, we cities? do. Yeah, we, we share a, a, um, a fence with a 52-acre cow pasture oh, um, in Sonoma. And, and yeah, it's really, it's really isolated. It's really in the middle of nowhere. You know, there's uh, there's only four houses total on our side of the freeway. So, I mean, it's like it's really out in the middle of nowhere. And it's great. I, I love it out here. You know, there's there's mooing and farm animals and every once in a while it <laughs> smells like cow shit. And it's great. <laughs> that's excellent. Well, that's uh, yeah, that's well, you're, you're living the dream as you can actually. That's funny when you can afford to live in the country. Yeah, is. is Especially in California, it's a funny thing. Well, so the you know all of all of what you're saying leads into perfect segue into the, your your current venture. I mean, I know you both have Pumplamoose is a little bit on hiatus right now. I guess you'd say because you're you're pursuing more intensively your own solo careers, but also working together obviously on aspects of that too. Um, but I know that Patreon, uh, this is an outgrowth clearly of all the stuff you're talking about. Is uh, you know so Kickstarter started around the same time you guys started to get uh, attention on YouTube. It's about 2009. Kickstarter has kind of a very particular crowdfunding model and it's become dominant. I mean, we've got Indiegogo, you've got a few others that are 
take different aspects. But what is it about? And I know um, uh, Natalie did a, a Kickstarter campaign. So you must have, you must have been involved in uh, since you live in the same house for uh, her album. What is it about Kickstarter that didn't meet? your needs as an artist and you thought there should be an alternative to yeah well i mean first of all i think kickstarter is an incredible platform i i really think it's a great idea and it's really well executed and it's helped so many people it's not perfect for people who are releasing stuff all the time like me it's great for people who are releasing one big thing, like a movie, you know, if you're Zach Praff and you need funding for a movie, or if you're coming out with an album, you know, if you're Amanda Palmer, you know, and you're coming out with a single album or something like that. But if you're, if you're like me and you're releasing new stuff every two weeks or every three weeks, or if you're like the other tens of thousands of content creators on YouTube with hundreds of thousands of subscribers and you're releasing new stuff every week, you would kind of have to invent a new project to be funded on Kickstarter, you know, and that's something that a lot of YouTubers were starting to do and that, that I noticed, you, you know, you get a, a YouTuber who's a vlogger and they're unable to make money as a vlogger and they're, they, they're like, okay, shit, I have 200,000 subscribers. <laughs> Every time I release a video, I get 150,000 views off the bat. People really like me, but I'm not making any money. Ad revenue off of 100,000 views per video is nothing. And how am I going to actually – I have all these fans, people who adore me and want me to keep making videos, but but I have – so then this person would say, okay, well – it, I'm going to try and make an album and I'm going to do a Kickstarter because I need some money. So they go to their fans and say, guys, I'm going to try recording an album. Now, not only are they doing something that they've never really done before, <laughs> but, they're, but they're doing something that isn't the reason why they got popular or liked in the first place. The reason oh, they got, yeah. the reason that they're contributing back to society, the, the reason they have value is because of these weekly videos. That's why they've accumulated the fan base they have. For that person to have to invent a project to start making a living off of what they're doing best that doesn't make sense they should just continue to do what they do best if that's what's adding value to society if that's what's making them popular they should be paid for that and so patreon is a way for them to not change their workflow to not invent a new project to simply do what they're doing that people are enjoying anyway it's the they get to keep doing what makes them more popular and what what uh, grows their channel on youtube they don't have to invent some new way to make money they just keep doing what they're doing and people pay them for that for continuing to do that well, it's a subscription model. As a, I mean, Kickstarter, as you say, it's like Kickstarter is one big lump and you have to convince everyone to come in at once. And you're also shooting your wad. It's, I, I've talked to like a cartoonist friend of mine did a successful uh, Kickstarter for his first self-published book last year. It went very well. He's very happy. He fulfilled it, all that. And he's like, I can't go back to that well again in maybe it's another year and a half before I could do it. And he's you know, he did the right thing, so he's got piles of books he can sell. And it's, he did it, I think he did it very cleverly. But now he's got no recurring revenue from that. Your, yep. your Patreon is, it seems like it's, I love this artist. How can I support them? Ah, if I give X dollars a month, it's not only like the making the, the, the rising the water around them, so it's floating their boat up higher, but then I get the benefit of this continuous stream of that person's creativity, not just this one lump that happens after a huge amount of effort that nearly destroys some people as they try to fulfill their Kickstarter. Yes, yes. Um, how, how many friends of yours have gone through six or nine or 12 months of hell with Kickstarter? Too? Yeah, it, it is a very difficult... 
you know, and, and I think people do that. They, they do that to themselves. They overcommit mm-hmm. and, you know, you end up, you end up doing a Kickstarter campaign where you're, you spend more money, you know, than you make trying to fulfill your orders. And, and it's just tons of time and energy and effort. And it's a, you know, it's a big, it's a big push. And again, I think it's great because it funds a lot of people and some people walk away with, you know, 90,000 bucks to make a new album. And that's awesome. But it's it's just it's not what's best for me. It's not what I need right now. I don't need a big lump sum of ninety thousand dollars. I need three thousand bucks a month so I can keep coming out with badass robot videos. You know, a, yeah. I'll put a link in the show notes. That is it. That it's like it gives me happy nightmares. That video. It's so <laughs> I didn't realize. I mean, the robot. Oh my god, it's great. And it's like it's creepy, wonderful, hilarious. So I'll put, I'll put people can watch that and get the uh, get their own mind virus from it. But so the 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 thing about the site that I think is uh, is interesting is that you're tapping into people's best instincts about their relationships with artists or artists' best instincts about the relationships with fans, that this is a productive, supportive feedback loop. And, you know, one of the things that you're sort of like, quote, unquote, selling is you're selling an experience and that I notice, you know, one of the things that you've emphasized here is at these top levels, like you've got to deal the $100 or more per video uh, level, which you had five patrons, it's all sold out. I even like the click to be notified when a spot opens, someone stops doing the monthly subscription. It's the, uh, you know, an hour long Google Hangout with you every time you release a new video. That is, it's an interesting way you're putting yourself out there. You're making yourself available, which is, you know, sort of a vulnerable aspect. I'm an artist, I'm going to talk to my fan. But it's also, it's what your best fans want is they're like, God, I'd love to have an experience with this guy whose music I love so much. Yeah, so here's an interesting thing about that. And and I, I struggle with this as a content creator and just and just in terms of the the ethos of the site and, and what it you know what it actually is doing and why it's actually working. And you know so this is this is a this is a big topic for me. So I, I actually would like to spend a little time on this. I believe that the site works. I believe that Patreon works because of an experience that I had, um, that I've had now a couple times watching YouTube videos. It's highly personalized, specific content that is specific to my needs. It's not lowest common denominator. It's not like I only have 200 channels on the television and I have to pick one of those 200 channels. No, there are a million channels on the internet and I get to pick any one of those million channels and a few of them are going to be so aligned with my principles and values and what I hold as important to me that it's going to feel like it was made for me, you know? And and the experience of watching that content I'll just, I'll just, you know, I'll come out and say it. I, I was literally moved to tears twice watching YouTube videos over the last mm-hmm. year or two. And, you know, it's like, okay, I'm a dude in front of my computer in my hotel room. And I literally started crying, like, like not just crying, just like, just bawling, just uncontrollable, like chest shaking, sobbing. Like there was just such a beautiful thing that I was watching. And, and that, you know, if I could have given that content creator a thousand dollars right there. If there had been a button under their video that was like, give this person a thousand dollars to keep making more videos. I would have clicked that button in a second. I'd have just given them a thousand dollars. I'd have eaten peanut butter and jelly for a year to do that. (laughs) And, and that, that's why the site works. It's because people have a relationship with these content creators that is unprecedented in media. It's unprecedented. We've never seen this 
this level of interest and joy and connection before between creator and viewer, between personality and audience. That's never existed to this extent. It's amazing. People feel, I mean, my, my fans, and this is weird for me to think about, but, you know, I'm on Twitter sometimes and people are saying, I just had a dream about Jack Conti. He and I were hanging out and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I, at night, I'm all over the world hanging out with people and, and playing music with them. And like, and people are, every second of the day, people are watching me doing stuff and pop loose and they're, and they're feeling happy from it. And, and I'm, I, I, I know that because I feel that about the, the channels that I follow. I mean, I'm subscribed to over 125 channels on YouTube, and I have dreams about those people, people I've never met before. I have really intense emotional dreams about these people. And what can you say? It's, it's a new world. It's a new frontier. It's, it's an age of connection and, and social relationships that are simply – that would have never existed before. And, and it's a level of intensity that – that I think is it's that level of intensity that's why Patreon works. It's because we feel that strength of connection and we want to help that person just continue making more videos. So yes, I am <laughs> I am selling, you know, I yeah. think some of my income, five hundred bucks of my sixty three hundred dollars, eight percent of my sixty three hundred dollars a month comes yeah. from those one on one Google Hangouts. And yeah. yes, that is a part of it. But I think the major driving force behind the site, the major ethos, the reason that it's working is because people feel connected to me and they want to help me because they really enjoy what I'm making. This is always the thing I thought about Kickstarter was it's that expression of um, support and desire and will being reflected as a cash payment. And cash is fine if that allows you to like, I want this thing to come into existence. But as you point out, Kickstarter is, you know, it's a lump sum. This is, I want this to, I want to be Patreon continuously supportive of these things coming into existence. I don't know what they are, but by this artist, I'm just going to push, push, push this tiny stream of, well, you know, in some cases people giving you a dollar, right? It's a tiny stream of money, but it adds up and it becomes something that, I mean, I know you're just starting out with this, but it's, I can even see the amounts and some of the more popular people have more money, but this seems to be a way to defeat the long tail problem a bit is that you're making it more accessible for the true fans to be able to easily directly support the artist. Yes. And it gives the artist a much simpler way to get at least the baseline of funding or some baseline of funding they need. Yes. Yes. I mean, precisely. It's, uh, there are so many tens of thousands of content creators who are making so much stuff that so many people enjoy, you know, and for those people to be able to make a living, that's my dream come true. You know, they're, they're adding so much to, to society. They're adding so much to people's lives and they should make a living from that. I mean, literally right now you have people with football stadiums full of fans, a hundred thousand people looking forward to that content creator's next video. And they're mm -hmm. making a hundred dollars a month in ad revenue from that <laughs> wow. with a, with a, imagine right. a football, just like take a second, take a second to just picture the sound and the vibration and the intensity of a football stadium cheering. Think about that. Think about that energy. Really try to picture that and what it looks like. People on their feet cheering. And then think that the person they're cheering for is making $100 a month. That's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's the mismatch, right? The mismatch between the size of the audience and the, and the, and I mean, because money is not a filthy object, right? In this economy is that is that money, it's because I always, I don't know, always back up to the like, 
especially with the, the backlash Amanda Palmer got about her very successful campaign, you know, and I'm still, I was looking at pictures of her cuddling in a closet with people at a house party last yep. night. Yep. You know, that's what she does, right? And it's like, it's not that money takes away. It's like money enables these things to happen. And the people who are fans, uh, you know, like me, I've contributed to 50 Kickstarter campaigns. And for me, like the ones that fulfill, even the ones that don't, which has been a small proportion of that, it's, I don't care because my money is an expression of love, you know? Yeah. And it's the love between a fan and the artist is a perfectly legitimate kind of, kind of love. And you feel it. You're talking about how you feel it. It's a kind of intimacy and connection when you have the direct ability to help an artist achieve what they can do. And you get the, the feedback of the other side of that love is as a fan, you get to see the finished work. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really is. Um, that, yeah, that, that's, that's what it is. People are realizing that that artists need to make a living. People are starting to get excited about that, and they're they're rooting for you <laughs> when you start making a living. Instead artists of artists need to make a living, it's true. Yeah, it's not selling out anymore. It's it's yeah. the, it's gaining the ability to continue doing things that make other people like you. <laughs> you it's know, not it's, selling out because we know, like in Kickstarter, there's like ten percent off the top from Kickstarter and credit card fees, and the rest goes to the artist. In your situation, yeah. you know, there's a there's a processing fee. You're not taking ninety five percent and have the hundred thousand dollars studio fees up front that will, you know, indenture you the rest of your life. Right. People don't mind supporting artists if they know the money is going to the artist. Yes. Yes. That's, oh, that's such a big part of it. I mean, knowing where the money is going is, is like the most important thing. I mean, otherwise if people feel like, oh, my money's just going to some big corporation and it's not going to the person who made it, you know, they, they'll steal it. Honestly, um, we've seen that. That's how it happens. Who are you screening people to come in on the artist side now? Are you taking applications? Because I see there are a number of people, but it's it's still relatively small, obviously, compared to the na- the number of people in the world that could be uh, participating in this. Um, they will. So anyone can just sign up and start a Patreon campaign on their own. Mm. Anyone's allowed to do that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. I see a new model for podcasts here too. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, we really want to tap into the podcast market because I feel like you know podcasts are the same kind of things. That's I was just exactly. talking with a with a podcast recently who who has um, I think a quarter of a million listeners mm-hmm. per month. No, 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 no. I'm sorry, two million listeners per month. Two million listeners per month, and they're like trying to figure out how to stay afloat, and that's it's that's like crazy to me it's a very worse the mismatch you're talking about is like every level so it's a great a great funnel well boy jack this is this is fascinating stuff i feel like we scratched the surface and thank you for sharing your enthusiasm and excitement about all uh, your you know everything it's wonderful to talk to someone who's so positive about connecting other people together as well as the work you do yourself oh absolutely thank you glenn thanks for having me on the podcast If you'll be in Portland, Oregon on Wednesday, September 18th, 2013, The New Disruptors and The Magazine are having a small shindig with some live interviews, drinks, and mingling. Visit newdisrupt.org slash pdx2013 for details and a link to RSVP a yes or a maybe, or email us at show at newdisrupt.org. The New Disruptors has a new home. Find us at newdisrupt.org. You can find our new podcast feed, leave comments on individual podcasts, or send feedback. We release a new episode every Thursday. Would you like to sponsor this show? We'd be glad to have you. Visit podlexing.com for more details. 
Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask that you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Oh,